Hey, cashiers. We Have the Receipts podcast is coming at you live from Netflix is a Joke Fest in Los Angeles. Chris, are you kidding? No, Netflix is a joke, Courtney, but this is not one of them. Our listeners in LA have the chance to join us for a live recording of our podcast, We Have the Receipts, hosted by me, Chris Burns. And me, Courtney Revolution. Join us and a few surprise guests from your favorite Netflix reality shows on Saturday, May 4th at 1 p.m. at a secret location in Hollywood. To be announced. Get your tickets for the We Have the Receipts live show at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. That's todoom, T-U-D-U-M dot com slash W-H-T-R. Tickets are limited. If you can't make it to the show, we still want to hear your beautiful voice. Leave us a message at speakpipe.com slash We Have the Receipts. You may even hear your own voice on the show. Grab a ticket at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. And we'll see you on May 4th in Los Angeles. Bye, cashiers. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast for Netflix original true crime stories. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, your host. Each episode, we take a close-up look at a true crime documentary or series, and I talk to the people who made them, digging deep into the backstories and getting answers to questions raised by what we just watched. Up this week, Fear City, New York versus The Mafia. The three-part documentary chronicles the rise and fall of New York's most powerful mafia families from the perspective of the FBI agents and prosecutors who risked their lives to take them down. I'll be talking with Sam Hopkinson, the film's director. Because of the COVID-19 pandemic, our guest was recorded in his home and not in a studio, and we appreciate your understanding. People once called New York Fun City. Now the police are calling it Fear City. In the 70s, city of New York was owned by the mob. We were untouchable. I didn't feel New York was mine for the taking. I thought we already took it. They had judges they put on the bench. They controlled restaurants, the docks, the ships, hospitals, and go on and on. It was total anarchy. You knew if you didn't pay on time, they'd bend your leg and stuff it in your pocket. Law enforcement didn't have any power to do anything. It was the golden era of the mob. The FBI couldn't keep up with us. There was no way. boss asked me to come to his office, said, we want to indict all five families at the same time. I said, what are you shitting me? We're going to bug the families. The Gambino family. The Genovese family. Colombo, Lucchese. Banana. We were going to hear them on the tape with our very own ears. Listen to me. I'll sever your Sam, thank you so much for speaking with me. I so appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I am a huge fan of this documentary, and here's why. I have become extremely fatigued as someone from New York originally who grew up on Long Island in the 80s in the era of the Gambino family and the Colombo family and the Genovese family all being in the news all the time and the many, many, many sensational, highly acclaimed, and I think glorifying art and film projects around the mafia. I'm very fatigued of that sort of glorification of the mob. And this documentary really comes at it in a way that tells the story of the crime, but does it in such a way where you understand the grandeur of it, but you don't feel like you are complicit in it. Was that your intention when you were making this film? Well, it's obviously well-trodden ground, isn't it? The, uh, the, the mobster genre, and we were obviously aware of that. But we were also aware that most mob movies 
are told from the perspective of the uh, of the mobsters. So we wanted to do something that was a bit different. And I guess that was one reason why we decided to tell the story from the point of view of law enforcement, from the point of view of the FBI. And obviously when we dug a bit deeper and, and looked at how that sort of cat and mouse game between the FBI and, and the mafia played out, we realised that it was a great story because... Through the 70s, actually from the end of the 60s, all the way through the 70s, the FBI had no chance. The mafia was better organised than them. You know, they they had their fingers in many different industries, many different levels of New York City. And the FBI couldn't do anything. They could scratch the surface. They could pick off the guys at street level who were committing the crimes, but they couldn't get to the people who were ordering those crimes, the, the, the captains, the underbosses, the bosses. So what you had was a classic story structure. You had a situation where you had a group of guys who were failing and they had to do something about it and things were getting worse. And they became spies. They started to bug the mafia and they collected their own words that would enable them to move through successive layers of mafia hierarchy to get to the bosses. We didn't want to glorify the mobsters, but the more we spoke to them, we also realised they were a sort of, they couldn't be ignored in this story in any way. And when we spoke to them, obviously, we were charmed by them because that was the secret of their success. Hmm. They got became well-known in their neighbourhoods. They became well-liked in their neighbourhoods um, by people they did not have a beef with. A lot of people felt that they ran their neighbourhoods in maybe a better way than law enforcement could. Right, right. But, of course, this was completely destabilising the city in so many ways and making it incredibly lawless. So... Um, we saw a great cat and mouse game between these two sides that we could string out into a story that would tell uh, would tell the story of, of, of New York at this period in history from many different levels, from the street all the way up to the, the, the politicians and city hall. I, I do think that people who are not from New York or Boston or Miami or Las Vegas, um, maybe a, one or two other places in the United States, it is difficult to understand the tremendous influence the mafia had, not just on business and industry. I mean, I remember growing up and like everyone knew that like your local garbage men were like in a mafia controlled union. Like everybody knew that. Everyone knew that like cement companies and sand companies. But also, you know, at Columbus Day parades, which, you know, are problematic in and of themselves, there would be a marching band playing the Godfather theme. Like it was it sort of celebrated, just sort of a given that this was part of the landscape in New York. And I, I think one of the ways you really capture that in this film and I just want to ask about how you did it there is so much archival footage of the time the places the neighborhoods the streets uh the mobsters themselves um you really paint a very vivid picture of what New York looked and smelled and felt like at that time where did you get all of that archival footage all over really is the answer I mean you you know we were we were very lucky to have the time and money to really concentrate on 
getting the best material that we could. And, and it was very important for us to use that archive footage. And in fact, it was where we began. We began with the archive footage. We began with the archive bug recordings. And we began with the archive photographs, the surveillance photographs and other photographs around of the mafia at that time. And really, then we built the series visually from from there. But the representation of New York at the period was absolutely key to us. And it was the thing that really drew me to the series was that it's more than just a mob series it's a new york mob series and it's it, we always saw new york as being a character within the series so it, the, it it's representation in, in archive footage was key but also the way we shot the interviews i didn't want them to be in a studio i didn't want them to feel it being a non a sort of non space i wanted the characters to be very much sitting in the city and and represented as being within the city uh, in, 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 in scenes that were reminiscent of movies of the period, um, locations that were reminiscent of movies of the period. It's it, not only is there a lot of great archival footage from New York during the 70s and 80s, but New York in the 70s and 80s has got an incredible cinematic heritage. Great movies were shot in, in the city around that time. And, and we were very inspired by those films not necessarily to pastiche them in such a way, but they helped create the image of New York at that time. And, and, and we wanted our series to sort of fit into that cinematic canon. A lot of the story is driven by FBI agents, former FBI agents, people who worked in this operation, talking about how they did what they did. And to illustrate that in, in real time in the film, not only do you have surveillance photographs, but you have, I'm guessing, what you drew from uh, thousands and thousands of hours of surveillance audio tape, uh, wiretap tape. How, first of all, how did you get all that stuff? That's something that I, I'm always curious about. And also, what was the process like of sifting through it all to get the bits that you needed to make this documentary? It was long, in a word, if you want a one-word <laughs> answer. Um, it was long. Uh, um, but, but no, the hunt for the surveillance tapes was the backbone, really, of, of the work on the series. How you get hold of this kind of thing is a it's, it's a sort of it's a story in itself really i mean the, the the everything that was used at trial at the commission trial and other mafia trials is technically in the public domain so if you can lay your hands on it you can use it the actual bureaucracy to get hold of that is another story and we had an amazing team of researchers who started asking people about what might still survive and where it might still survive and i can't go into an exact detail but suffice to say the stuff they unearthed was amazing and all the more amazing for the fact that it was it was stuff that maybe hadn't been heard before and hadn't been heard at trial so we get to that part of the process now where we uh, come into possession of a lot of tapes and a lot of transcripts but there's the next problem the tapes there is no way to know what tape matches up to which transcript so we've got piles and piles of paper loads and loads of tape that is hard to understand by the way when you listen to these tapes these bugs weren't they were not these people weren't mic'd in the way you and I are you know there might there was a microphone hanging out of a hole in the ceiling in another room you know I mean it was that far away and mobsters don't don't speak clearly uh, at the best of times or certainly not in a language that you and I might 
be able to understand readily. <laughs> so we, 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 we got into this situation where this team of people were listening. They were listening to the tapes, they were making notes on the tapes, and then they were going back to the transcripts. How can I marry that up? How can I... What, so we can then get a handle on all this material we've got and go through it and decide how we're going to use it to tell our stories. The irony was, is that we realised we were doing exactly the same thing as the FBI had done all those years before. <laughs> yeah. when, when they were listening, trying to understand, what does this mean? What is it? Has it got anything to do with our story? How can we link piece A to piece B to build a narrative? We were doing exactly what they were doing. <laughs> That's right. And it was, you know, and, and in a way, it was a great experience to, to know and understand what they went through. Hmm. We had certain stories we wanted to tell. We had a basic framework of stories we wanted to tell. This story is not one story. It's hundreds of stories. Right, right. Hundreds of different investigations that all fed in to one trial or actually a series of trials. We only cover one of them. And the strongest stories sort of rose to the top to some extent. Hmm. Some of those strong stories we realised we, we couldn't fit into our narrative. They were great stories, but we couldn't quite piece them in to our narrative. And it, it's, it's a very, very complex, very, very complex story ultimately. And, and, and one of our jobs was to make it as clear as possible. I wasn't surprised that you got, you know, two former wise guys to fill us in on, you know, the way the mafia worked. It does seem like a lot of these guys do like talking about what they sort of, um, even though some of them are obviously very much on the straight and narrow and have moved on and have whole new jobs now, they do seem to enjoy talking about it and they're very colorful characters. And I do think we've seen lots of, you know, documentaries that that feature guys like Johnny and Mike, although I think you picked two very good ones to fill that in for us. <laughs> What really surprised me were the number of law enforcement people you were able to include and how interesting they were, how colorful they were, how they were able to articulate their, for lack of a better phrase, like holy shit moments in the investigation and and the way they did their work and how they would pour through these tapes. Were you surprised? First of all, how did you get to talk to so many FBI people? And also, were you surprised at how good they were and how interesting they were in talking about their work well I, I mean you know what struck me overall what struck me is how proud everyone who's involved in this story was about what mm. they achieved during this period so that that goes for the fbi agents the prosecutors but also the mobsters i mean a, a lot of people have asked me how did you get mobsters to sit down in front of a camera <laughs> you know well actually you can't keep them from cameras. yeah uh, yeah that's the truth they, they, they sort of live in a movie of their own lives. And this is, I, I, I was very interested in this kind of reflection between their image and the image of their kind of counterparts in popular culture, because I think they probably feed off each other in, in many ways. Um, but they were extremely proud about the fact they stuck it to the government for so long. And, that, and that's one of the things they wanted to talk about. But to go back to, I mean, obviously the FBI agents... We spoke to a lot. We spoke to more than we included in the show and we recorded a few more than were actually ultimately included in the show. I, I suppose making a documentary like this, you cast it like you cast a movie. So you're looking for, you know, you're looking for the, the sort of the, the gruff one who doesn't want to, you know, who doesn't want to give up his secrets. You're looking for the sort of the overexcitable one. You know, you want to you want to mix. You want females. You want males. I mean, it's, obviously, it was much harder to find female agents at the time because there were so few female agents at the time we're really happy 
with the, uh, the the two female agents that, that ended up so in the show because I. I thought you know I'm sure I'm sure and they were great and they were so you know I mean they were tough and they, they were very honest actually about how hard it was you know at the time a lot of these agents had kind of complicated relationships with their subjects you know especially when they began to be assigned to you know particular families they were Mm. divided into those squads when Mm. you know they decided to start you know looking at this as a much larger conspiracy they they came up with these little tactical teams and there was one for the colombo family and one for the genovese family and they through their surveillance and other you know information gathering with informants and stuff really developed you know authentic if not dysfunctional uh, relationships with the subjects of their investigation, right? Yeah, absolutely. And they were, I mean, they were told to get to know them. I mean, it was a sort of, um, you know, the superiors would say, and the supervisors on the squads would say, you need to go out and, you know, uh, our guys need to know you. And, you know, the the extreme version of this, of course, was Joe O'Brien and his greetings cards. Please talk about that. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it, there's a lot more details of that story, really, that we couldn't get in. But I mean, what's but he was, you know, he was given a, a role. And, and, and it, it, Joe Brown is a sort of singular sort of investigator and agent. You know, he was never he was a classic sort of investigator type. He would never turn up at the office. He wasn't a desk guy. You know, mm. he was always out on the street. He was always giving these guys hell. And, and and the greetings card thing was a a way of of doing it and winding them up. So he would send them greetings cards, and as he said, you know, they would always be hallmark, always the best. He wouldn't skimp on money. I was messing with them. This was like a psychological warfare. I wanted to see what they were made of. My partner Andy and I were listening. We had headsets on. He talked about the greeting cards, a lot of profanity and everything. Kind of funny when you're listening to the guy and he's opening a card and talking about you. <laughs> and um, and and he'd send on he'd find out when their birthday was, and he'd find out when their wife's birthday was, and he'd find out when their wedding anniversary was, and he'd send them cards. And not only is this sort of slightly winding them up with a kind of false friendliness, um, but it's also uh, subtly saying, "I know everything about you. I know when your birthday is. I know when your wife's birthday is." But aren't those mafia um, tactics like those are mafia tactics to yeah. say, I'm watching you. I know everything about you. And also like in the guise of respect, you know, because a card is a very respectful, formal way of communicating. It felt very mafia to me what he was doing yes. to them. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think. But I think it's it's true of a lot of the agents that, you know, say the old fine line between the cops and the robbers. That's, you know, and, and, you know, even Rudy Giuliani even says it himself, you know, he could have ended up a wise guy. I think a lot of these people, these investigators, these prosecutors, they, they had something of that. Um, they had something of that. Mob mentality is probably the wrong word. But mm. um, one mob lawyer said to me, and, and he's not, he didn't end up in the series, but uh, he said, you know, you've got to understand this is just a game of two gangs, the mafia and the government. And... Um, uh, you know, of course, I put that to a lot of the FBI agents and, and uh, the likes of Giuliani. And, uh, you know, they, they, they didn't really respond. I mean, they, they sort of said, well, it's not really because, you know, we were on the side of the law and they weren't. But there was definitely, you know, we tell it in our story that, that, that the FBI reorganized themselves in alignment with the mafia. There was one squad right. per family. 
and there were all these jokes about you know the supervisor of the squad was the sort of the godfather of the squad and you know so you know the, so and you can see there's a parallel but they they did it consciously because they realized that the mafia was supremely well organized and they had to mirror that organization so then you get this these agents like o'brien sending send you know employing as you say mafia tactics um playing games mafia like games sending these greeting cards the best one, obviously, by the way, was on Father's Day. You know, he sent Paul Castellano a, a card to a to a special godfather, which I uh, oh. I, I, I loved. So. Um, <laughs> um, but but also um, you have Joe Cantamesa, who who was you know the oh. the, uh, the 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 so called black bag man who who would break in and 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 plant the FBI bugs. But as as he said, you know. He grew up a, a, a bad guy, sort of on the wrong side of the tracks. He knew he knew how to hide. He knew how to blag his way into places. And actually, that was a skill that was then used by the FBI, by him as an FBI agent, to um, you know against the mafia. So I think you're right. I think there's a there's a lot of uh, traits that can be seen on on both sides. So so that Joe, the second Joe, the black bag man. You could make an entire series about him. I mean, his story about, you know, going into, was it Castellano's house and, and, and installing mm. the bug in the cable box? The cable, and, cable guy, yeah. And, and getting them to help him? Here, hold this. Yeah. <laughs> install the bug in the cable box. And the fact that he would put on different disguises and go into different yeah. places and probably ran into some of the same people more than once, but was good enough at it that, you know, he was able to get away with it. That was incredible. I- incredible. The thing about Joe, he's, he's such a cool cookie that, um, <laughs> you know, it was quite difficult to get a sense of jeopardy in those scenes as a, mm. as a, as a filmmaker, because he, you know, and quite rightly, he, he, knew he was he was ultra professional and he understood that if he was playing a role which was as near as damn it to his sort of his former job, which was a telecommunications engineer, phone engineer, um, then he wouldn't have to do much lying. So, you know, when they, when, for example, he would go into his house, they would, in, they would introduce faults onto their lines. So they had, to, he had to go in and fix the phone. So he was genuinely mm-hmm. going in and fixing the phone, which he would do, um, you know, and he'd get very good tips um, as well, which he, uh, he said ended up in the, the 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 sort of the coffee fund at the at the FBI but um anyway but um the job he was doing as an agent was essentially what he used to do he he, he wouldn't hide behind a thick disguise so he'd have his own wallet with you know you know with with cards which would have a sort of a name of an alias but you know all of all of the other all of the other little details would be very close to his own life so if he ever got into mm. a position where he was sort of found out, there wouldn't be, yeah, you know, it wasn't it wasn't sort of false moustaches and, and and disguises in a in an elaborate way, and I I found that fascinating that it was it was that was what made it easier to do, and that's what made him so skillful. Right. right. I mean, again, I will say it's kind of a mafia tactic i mean the wise guys show up they don't not wear their wise guy clothes when they walk into a place to do business i mean they they act like characters in their own movie i mean that Mm. is 
you know, I, and I, I do think the FBI was smart to to adopt that in some ways. And I think it came naturally. One of my favorite moments uh, when they were talking about that taping operation was it um, the agent was at Marilyn who talked about how, you know, the sound of a mafia kitchen is really just people cooking eggs and yeah. just talking about nothing most yeah. of the time. It was a total immersion into the life of a mafia household. So I never heard so many creative uses of the F word in my life. It was like some kind of soap opera. I got this impression that Angelo was this kind of cranky, over-verbal guy who loved his kids. Uh, the kids were, um, shall we say, a handful. He ran around and did a lot of meat-handed management of all these crew members in his mafia crew and his family. Yeah, I mean, I, I, these agents really did listen to a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of bullshit, basically. I mean, just like talking about nothing. And because these guys, and you, I've read the transcriptions, you know, I mean, what you get in the show is, is a, you know, mercifully is a sort of edited version, as it were. But, you know, you read these transcriptions of the, of the, of the bugs and they just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk, seemingly about absolutely nothing. Um, right. But, you know, it's and, and that's I, I suppose that, you know, when you look at a Scorsese movie like Goodfellas or something, you know, that dialogue is. Is very authentic, you know, I mean, it is, mm. you know, obviously lots of people have pointed out that the 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 accents, the turns of phrase that were on the tapes, they do. They sound more like Joe Pesci than Joe Pesci. And <laughs> and, and, and we were we got into a position actually early on early on in the process where at which point we didn't know how much actual audio we would be able to get we had a lot of transcripts and we were thinking we might what we might have to do is use actors to record the lines of the mobsters if you see Mm -hmm. what i mean um because we didn't have enough recordings luckily we didn't have to do that because the truth is if we had actors delivering the lines in the way the mobsters did on the tapes I think I, as a director, I'd be saying, "That's too over the top. That's <laughs> too much." You know, right. tone it down. Right. It sounds like it sounds like an impression of. Yeah, a exactly, you know. exactly. Yeah. But I mean, the yeah. truth is, and this is something that I, I really did learn that you know, we, we went into this, I suppose, with a with a mission to try and avoid the cliches of the mob genre. But the more you get into it, you realise that actually, that they're kind of cliches for good reason. That you know, this this is the way these people lived and it is the way they spoke and you know a lot of them wore fedoras smoked cigars and and you know and got shot in the back of pizza restaurants you know and you just think that's oh that's a cliche of the movies or the you know a, a fiction but um it's it's not one of the things that's really fascinating here is your portrayal of the prosecution team uh, we should point out there's a very big character who was a big character at the time and is a big character in modern times that appears in your film um, in, you know, in a contemporary interview. And that's Rudy Giuliani. Mm-hmm. I do think that given Rudy Giuliani's role in national politics in the last couple of years, a lot of people have either forgotten or never really knew that the reason that Rudy Giuliani is Rudy Giuliani is because 
He led this prosecution that took down the New York Mafia. Can you talk to me about how important it was for you to make sure that you told that story in the film and didn't, you know, delve into what Rudy Giuliani has been up to in the last like year or two? Well, it, it's it's interesting, isn't it? There was never a question that he wouldn't be in the series. You know, he was a he, mm. he's a key figure, and we were very interested in telling the story, like we, like I said, from the level of the streets all the way up to the the highest levels of city government, if you like. So he was always going to be a part of the series, and quite rightly, as you say, you know, it was, it was this prosecution among others that then gave him the springboard to become mayor, and ultimately put him in a political position to end up where he has now Mm. we've come in to quite a bit of criticism for i suppose for not bringing the giuliani and trump aspects of our series up to date you know Mm. and and, but this was something that was, was sort of always in our mind that we might be criticized for this because the the trump Mm. and giuliani now is such a big story that it seems completely wrong to a lot of people not to take it all the way. But we, we, were, we didn't want them to take over the story and become the story. Um, right. This is very much a, an historical documentary. We wanted to tell the story of their roles in our particular mafia FBI story from the 70s and 80s, and then allow other people to reflect on that in the context of modern times, rather than actually do all the reporting ourselves or what only investigating ourselves up to up to now, if you understand what I'm saying. So um, right. it was something that was going to be difficult to deal with. But what was most important to us was to tell the story we were telling and and for people then to draw their own conclusions from that, if you see what I mean. Hmm. Did any of the FBI agents tell you stories that you wished you could have included in the film, but you just had to cut for time or for tightness of the story? Oh, there was many more, uh, many more stories from our, um, our black bag man, Joe Cantamesa. Um, they were just kind of incredible <laughs> stories. And again, we, we, we couldn't use them because we realized actually that investigation doesn't quite fit in with our bigger narrative. And, and uh, you know, mm. as I said, it's, it's very important for things to be as clear as possible. You know, there's this great story about when he ended up sort of hiding under the bed of a mobster when, you know, he was surprised, he was in his room and he was doing something and this mobster came in and he was sort of surprised and the mobster found him there and um, he managed very coolly to sort of talk his way out of a situation that, you know, you would have thought he's going he's gonna to get killed. So, mm. yeah, yeah, I, amazing, amazing stories. As a viewer, I felt a lot of intimacy in the interviews with a lot of the subjects in this documentary, in particular the FBI agents. They felt closer uh, in frame. They felt more like they were telling me a story than telling somebody, um, you know, a producer off camera a story. It felt like I was really, you know, in uh, at the diner table, you know, mm, with the mm. the subject, hearing it first person. Mm. How did you achieve that in this film? Because I think that that is really what separates your film from another that may have been made about the same subject or that could be made. Like this is it's special for that reason to me. Well, I the, the obviously in a documentary like this, a sort of first person narrated history documentary, the interviews are everything. Uh, Because the the interviewees are telling their own story. 
And I, I felt very strongly that the interviews in this series needed to feel part of a bigger cinematic whole. I didn't, I didn't want them to feel like here's an interview, here's a bit of reconstruction, here's an interview, here's a bit of reconstruction. I wanted a certain seamlessness, and but I also wanted the interviews to feel like overheard conversations, like you said. So the way we shot them is very much... I mean, in a conventional documentary interview, you will have a camera pointing at a subject, and to the side, or behind the camera, will be the director asking the questions. We broke that down by setting up a scenario, be it an agent talking across a table in a diner to me, the interviewer, and then we found angles in which we could shoot it that framed me out. So it feels like a conversation, it feels like one half of a conversation in a movie. And that was the absolute, and we, and we created scenarios, movie scenes, if you like, in which we could do that. And, and, you know, two that keep coming back are, you know, the kind of the, the diner across the diner table um, right. in, 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 a, in a cafe or diner type setting and in a car. You know, you, these guys spent a lot of time in cars, staking places out, watching people. I wanted to sort of recreate that situation. So when you see Joe O'Brien or Joe Cantamesa sitting in their car talking, I'm sitting in the seat next to them and we're having a conversation much as much as they might have done with their with their colleagues back in the day or when you see Jim Cosler you know in a table and diner I'm sat across from him there's not a camera between us the camera's finding angles elsewhere um, that were sort of pre-planned and uh, you know that that's one of the things that I'm most proud of of this in filmmaking terms that it's we set out to do the interviews in a in a very different way, and I, I think they work very well. Now, this film is, it's, it's a, really, it's an achievement because it's a great historical account of the influence of the mafia in New York City, how that changed. I guess a question that I have for you is, why was it important to you to make this movie right now? Well, I think I'm a Brit, and um, most <laughs> of the rest of the production team were. I mean, it was made by a British production company called raw television uh, whom I, I've worked for quite a lot and and uh, I know quite well my co-producers as it were there and I think one of the things we all had an incredible experience growing up in the sense that we for us New York was this incredibly sort of exotic place exotic in a kind of um, dirty and violent way uh, that you wouldn't visit no one would go and visit New York, you know, because there were all these stories about you get mugged and it was dangerous and the murder rates and all of these kind of things. But it was an exciting place at the same time. It was a place of crime and stories. And um, and I think we grew up with that this, this very specific sort of image of New York at this period. And subsequently, we have obviously, you know, we've we've visited a New York which is much more sanitized, much safer. Um, and so the New York we know now as adults is so different from that, that period. And I think that's, it's, that's probably true to, um, obviously that's true to New Yorkers and Americans now. I mean, we're talking about 30 years in the past. So I think, I think it was important for us to make it now because we realised that this is a world that is 
is fading from living memory to some extent. I mm. mean, the, you know, the, the agents and the perpetrators of the crimes, the, the mobsters, the agents, they're all getting on. You know, I mean, it's and that seemed a, a good reason to properly document this story and this period of time, which is, you know, fast becoming forgotten, I think. Well, you documented it, but you also made it really, really entertaining. It's just awesome. Uh, Sam, the film is Fear City, New York versus the Mafia. I can't thank you enough for talking to me about it. It's been super interesting hearing your take on this story. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to director Sam Hopkinson. If you want to hear more of my takes on true crime and how we cover it in the media, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down true crime documentaries, podcasts, and the latest in pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please subscribe to, rate, and review this show and share it with friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for our next episode on American Murder, The Family Next Door. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hansdale Sue. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.